0: Chapter 8 A History of California, the American Period by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Advertising and Immigration, John Bidwell. The significant work of the overland fur traders came to a close about 1840. During the next few years, the course of California history ran along in the main with but little outward change from its regular routine. Cattle raising and the hide and tallow trade, with a little sea otter hunting along the coast and some beaver trapping in the interior, continued to be the chief occupations of the province. An occasional revolution gave temporary zest to domestic politics. While the mission establishments, secularized in 1834, Sank further and further into hopeless and unfortunate decay. The apparent sameness of these conditions, however, was purely superficial. Beneath the surface, clearly seen by interested foreigners and dimly sensed by the Californians themselves, the old regime was crumbling to pieces. Forces which had about them something of the strength and swiftness of destiny were about to supplant Mexican rule with that of the United States by eighteen forty the old california with its spanish institutions and habits and background stood close to the end of its tranquil romantic day a new order whose fulfillment came with the mexican war and the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo was already in the making after eighteen forty american interest in california already aroused by the new england merchants and the western fur traders received additional stimulus from other sources One of these was the unfortunate condition of the Mexican Republic. Constant revolution and economic chaos in a country which, at best, could only maintain the feeblest control over so distant a province as California, assured the end of that control at no very distant date. The people and the government of the United States consequently began to manifest increased concern in the future of the colony, and to consider what would follow when Mexican rule came to its inevitable end another cause of increased american interest in california was the controversy then nearing its climax between the united states and great britain over the possession of oregon in the long drawn out and at times very critical dispute over this territory the nation's attention was focused upon the whole pacific slope and california received almost as much publicity from the agitation as oregon itself conditions in texas following the establishment of that republic likewise reacted favorably upon the american advance to california the easy victories of the texan revolutionists and such senseless atrocities as the invaders committed at goliad intensified the profound contempt of the west for mexican authority and spread an outspoken ambition among the settlers of the frontier to play the texas game in california and to emulate Houston's example by setting up a new republic on the Pacific Slope. The possibility of European intervention in California was also held before the American people constantly during this period, serving both as a motive and excuse for annexation sentiment. In this, of course, California enjoyed no unique distinction, for the danger of foreign encroachment, real or imaginary, has influenced virtually every acquisition of United States territory, from the purchase of Louisiana in 1803 to the extension of American influence over Cuba and the Philippine Islands in our own generation. But in the case of California, this influence, as will be explained later, was stronger and more direct than in most annexation movements. Less tangible than the influences already mentioned, but certainly no less vigorous was the factor so particularly typical of jacksonian democracy manifest destiny this expression though still to be found in our political vocabulary does not now have the same meaning it formerly held for the great mass of our people especially for those who lived west of the alleghanies The influence of manifest destiny, once exerted upon the formation of public opinion and the appeal it once made to the nationalistic ambitions of our forefathers, can scarcely be appreciated by this present generation. The years from 1825 to 1850 constitute a period unique in many respects in American history. Before the first quarter of the nineteenth century was over, we had passed from the uncertainties and weakness of national childhood to the vigor and self-assertiveness of youth in all our conceptions in all our activities there was a largeness an assurance a sort of unfettered reckless energy that stamped itself upon the whole course of national development the patriotism of this period was never characterized by modesty or lukewarmness we cried the superiority of our institutions and proclaimed our greatness from the housetops yet if our patriotism appeared boastful and smacked of primitive crudeness it was never insincere the generation that knew henry clay and andrew jackson was never chargeable with this however its lack of restraint might offend the more refined taste of our own time the men of that day provincial though they may have been loved the united states with a hot passion of youth they cherished no illusion that democracy or freedom could live under any other form of government they held an implicit faith which acted upon them with a force of some deep religious conviction in the unbounded future of the american nation the expansion of the united states to the pacific the establishment of continent-wide boundaries the absorption of california the development of untold natural wealth that lay idle and neglected, the control of the oriental trade. This was the program that manifest destiny enjoined on the American people in 1840. Some historians have found the program difficult of justification. Its influence, however, no one will deny. Still another factor of primary importance in the annexation of California was the beginning of organized immigration from the western states shortly after 1840. The significance of this movement, which, of itself under normal conditions, would have led to the acquisition of the province by the United States in the course of a few years, has been obscured by two events that struck directly across its course. The first of these was the Mexican War. This altered the whole aspect of California conditions and hastened by several years, few or many, no one can say, the end of Mexican rule. The second was the gold rush of 1849, a migration of such stupendous proportions and so rapidly accomplished that the regular processes of settlement were completely submerged in it and lost sight of. The pre-war, pre-gold rush immigration, however, ought to be given a prominent place in the state's history, Not only was it a significant factor in arousing American interest in California, but it also furnished the basis for Polk's later diplomatic and military policy in the province. Above and beyond this, these first pre-pioneer settlers completed what the fur hunters had begun in the exploration of overland routes to the Pacific. What forces lay behind this early emigration from the border states across so many hundreds of miles of unknown wilderness? what motives compelled men and women to leave a settled society and established homes and set their faces westward toward a land they had never seen and a people who spoke an alien tongue the answer is simple the same forces and the same motives with little variation that led the western pioneer across the alleghanies and from the alleghanies to the mississippi and from the mississippi into texas explained the coming of the first american settlers across the sierra into california the frontiersman once the alleghanies were crossed was never at ease never satisfied in a permanent abode he wanted elbow-room wide separation from his nearest neighbor freedom from the restraints of society a region in which game was abundant and a place where he could do as he pleased to obtain this freedom he must always keep ahead of his more gregarious fellows and as they advanced he retreated farther and farther into the west The career of Daniel Boone, moving from Virginia to Kentucky and from Kentucky to Missouri, is characteristic of this type of pioneer. The expression often ascribed to the old Kentuckian may indeed be apocryphal, but it aptly expresses the attitude of the class to which he belonged. I first moved to the woods of Kentucky, Boone is reported to have said. I fought and repelled the savages in hope for repose, game was abundant and our path was prosperous but soon i was molested by interlopers from every quarter again i retreated to the region of the mississippi but again these speculators and settlers followed me once more i withdrew to the licks of missouri and here at length i hoped to find rest but i was still pursued for i had not yet been two years at the licks before a damned yankee settled down within a hundred miles of me The successors of Boone on the frontier, troubled as they were by the encroachment of the damned Yankees and of other undesirables from the effete regions east of the Mississippi, after 1840 began to look to the Pacific coast as a place of escape. The hard times of Van Buren's administration stimulated this instinctive land hunger and craving for new scenes among the back settlers. In the meantime, a very effective publicity campaign was directing their attention specifically to california the booster indeed is no recent product of the golden state long before the advertisements of railroads chambers of commerce and modern real estate dealers began to attract tourists from the east and middle west the charms and advantages of california were widely heralded throughout the united states most of this early publicity dealt with the climate of california the abundant supply of game in the province the natural resources it possessed, and the wonderful agricultural possibilities that were to be found on every hand. Along with such an appeal went a picture, scarcely less inviting to the adventurous Westerner, of the military weakness of the province and the decadent state of its inhabitants. To enable one to appreciate the effects of such advertising upon prospective immigrants and the American public as a whole, A few quotations, chosen almost at random from the literature of the time, must be given. So far as there is any record, the first American publicity agent for California was Captain William Shaler, whose narrative, appearing in 1808, has been referred to at some length in a preceding chapter of this volume. Shaler's detailed description of the many advantages of California closed with a frank appeal for annexation. At great expense and considerable industry, he wrote, the Spaniards have removed every obstacle out of the way of an invading enemy. They have stocked the country with a multitude of horses, cattle, and other useful animals. They have spread a number of defenseless inhabitants over the country whom they could never induce to act as enemies to those who should treat them well. In a word they have done everything that could be done to render california an object worthy the attention of the great maritime powers the conquest of this country would be absolutely nothing it would fall without an effort to the most inconsiderable force james ohio patti was another enthusiast over california's possibilities albeit his praises did not extend in the slightest degree to the californians themselves Those who traverse the province, he wrote, if they have any capability of perceiving and admiring the beautiful and sublime in scenery, must be constantly excited to wonder and praise. It is no less remarkable for uniting the advantage of healthfulness, a good soil, temperate climate, and yet one of exceeding mildness, a happy mixture of level and elevated ground and vicinity to the sea." Among other accounts that made the name of California widely known during these years was Richard Henry Dana's Two Years Before the Mast, first published in 1840. The author, who came to the California coast as a common seaman on one of the hide-and-tallow vessels, portrayed in his narrative the life and customs of the Californians with an accuracy unsurpassed by any of his contemporaries incidentally the book had about it a fascination of style that immediately gave it wide circulation and an established place in american literature one of his chapters dana concluded with the following paragraph such are the people who inhabit a country embracing four or five hundred miles of sea coast with several good harbors with fine forests in the north the waters filled with fish and the plains covered with thousands of head of cattle Blessed with a climate than which there can be no better in the world, free from all manner of diseases, whether epidemic or endemic, and with a soil in which corn yields from 70 to 80 fold. In the hands of an enterprising people, what a country this might be! End quote. Another enthusiastic admirer of California was Hall J. Kelly, an apostle of westward expansion who deserves a much wider fame than history has given him kelly indeed had within him a sort of missionary zeal the essence of which was the settlement of the pacific slope by american citizens his travels extending over a number of years carried him through much of the country west of the rockies and gave him first-hand knowledge of the conditions on the pacific while most of his active work was devoted to oregon his interest in california showed itself repeatedly in lecture and published article for he was an indefatigable advertiser of the whole West. In a report on the Oregon Territory, submitted to Congress in 1839, he devoted nearly half the allotted space to California because, as he said, he thought the annexation of that province to the United States was a matter sure of accomplishment and most earnestly to be desired. He concluded his description of the territory with this fervent wish, quote, When I remember the exuberant fertility, the exhaustless natural wealth, the abundant streams and admirable harbors, and the advantageous shape and position of high California, I cannot but believe that at no very distant day a swarming multitude of human beings will again people the solitude, and that the monuments of civilization will throng along the streams whose waters now murmur to the desert and cover those fertile vales, whose tumuli now commemorate the former existence of innumerable savage generations." To the praise voiced by Dana, Kelly, and others of this period, Thomas Jefferson Farnham, whose accounts of western scenes and experiences ran through many editions, added his extravagant commendation. The style of Farnham had in it too much of the spread eagle to be particularly attractive to the present generation, but this made his publications all the more attractive to the readers for whom he wrote. The trans-Allegheny settlers of Farnham's day were not admirers of restraint. They liked the exaggerated, the highly colored literature, as in everything else, and accordingly found Farnham's Life and Adventures in California a book decidedly after their own tastes. From it, they learned to despise the Californians as a weak, effeminate people cruel and treacherous when opportunity arose and to covet the rich empire over which they held such lax and temporary rule california wrote farnham is a wilderness of groves and lawns broken by deep and rich ravines separated from each other by broad and wild wastes along the ocean is a world of vegetable beauty on the sides of the mountains are the mightiest trees of the earth and on the heights are the eternal snows lighted by volcanic fires it may be confidently asserted that no country in the world possesses so fine a climate coupled with so productive a soil as the seaboard portion of the Californians, including the territories on the bay of san francisco and the rivers san joaquin and sacramento but its miserable people live unconscious of these things in their gardens grow the apple the pear the olive fig and orange the irish and sweet potato yam and the plantain most luxuriantly side by side and yet they sleep and smoke and hum some tune of castilian laziness while surrounding nature is thus inviting them to the noblest and richest rewards of honorable toil the effect of such accounts in bringing about the first waves of overland migration to california can scarcely be overestimated year by year publications of this kind some of which will be spoken of elsewhere, increased in number, and their influence was continually supplemented by newspaper articles, magazines, and lectures, or reports of returned travelers and explorers. Through these agencies, the people of the United States were taught to look upon California as a land of infinite promise, abounding in agricultural and commercial possibilities, so full of game that thousands of elk were annually slaughtered for their hides and tallow, rich in timber blessed with a perfect climate inhabited by an effeminate unambitious people and ruled over by an inefficient government to the western settlers such a picture presented an irresistible appeal long before the stampede began for the mines when every approach to the pacific was crowded with the hurrying feet of the argonauts the trans-mississippi frontier was already in motion sending its restless children on horseback and by ox wagon over the long and dangerous trail to california the first of these organized emigrant parties to start for california left the western frontier barely eighty years ago how rapid has been the course of american development it originated in platte county missouri where the settlers had been aroused to such a high pitch of enthusiasm for the venture that they formed an organization called the western immigration society for the purpose of enlisting recruits and providing a systematic program for the expedition. The immediate responsibility for this California fever lay at the door of a trapper named Rubideau, recently arrived from the coast with marvelous reports of what he had seen and learned. Rubideau, who appeared to be a calm and considerate man, so impressed his Platte County hearers that he was asked to speak before a large assembly of interested settlers. At this meeting, Rubideau described California as a land of perennial spring and boundless fertility. Innumerable herds of cattle and wild horses, he said, dotted the hillsides and grassy plains. Oranges and other fruits grew in profusion. The authorities were friendly toward Americans, and the people the most hospitable on the globe. To an ague-racked member of the assembly, whose idea of paradise was a land free from chills and fever, Rubidoux gave the following assurance quote, there never was but one man in california who had the chills he was from missouri and carried the disease in his system it was such a curiosity to see a man shake with the chills that the people of monterey went eighteen miles into the country to see him the effect of such descriptions upon minds already eager for change can readily be imagined rubidoux's experts were supplemented by letters from dr john marsh an american resident of california who had reached the coast with one of the santa fe trapping expeditions in the thirties marsh had taken up a large ranch near mount diablo where he acquired a very considerable reputation and became one of the most influential foreigners in the province his letters were published in local missouri newspapers and afterwards copied in keeping with the system of news exchange then in vogue by many other western journals the western Emigration society was also itself responsible for much propaganda in favor of the california movement it corresponded with possible immigrants as far off as kentucky indiana and arkansas and collected information relating to routes methods of travel and the status of foreigners in the province eventually the society circulated a pledge that bound its signers to meet the following may at sapling grove in what is now eastern kansas suitably equipped and armed ready to start for california this pledge had not been in circulation a month before five hundred signatures were obtained for it before spring came however this first enthusiasm had materially cooled landowners and merchants of platte county looking with some dismay on the threatened exodus of so many of the county's inhabitants set about countering the movement with a good deal of vigor discouraging reports began to appear regarding the difficulties of the route and the hazardous nature of the undertaking ugly stories were also circulated of the treatment americans were receiving at the hands of california officials and more effective still sober second thought on the part of those at first so ready for the journey seriously undermined the work of the california enthusiasts accordingly instead of the five hundred who were counted upon to make the party not more than 69 put in an appearance at the rendezvous, and only one of these had signed the original pledge of the Immigrant Society. This was John Bidwell, a young man who had but recently come to Missouri from Ohio in search of health and livelihood. The California venture so fired his interest that he became one of the chief organizers of the expedition and stuck by the project in the face of every discouragement. The same enthusiastic, determined spirit was later to bring him influence and a well-deserved honor in the land toward which he now set his face. Not inaptly has John Bidwell been called the Prince of California Pioneers. The company which met at Sapling Grove in May 1841 to take up the long journey to California could scarcely be described as an efficient organization none of them were experienced mountain men or familiar with the first essentials of travel in the far west their ignorance of the route can best be described in bidwell's words we knew that california lay west and that was the extent of our knowledge some of the maps consulted supposed to be correct showed a lake in the vicinity of where salt lake now is it was represented as a long lake three or four hundred miles in extent narrow and with two outlets both running into the pacific ocean Either apparently larger than the Mississippi River. End quote. So prevalent was this conception of Western geography that Bidwell was advised to take tools along with which to construct canoes for the navigation of one of these rivers from Salt Lake to the Pacific. To the difficulty of ignorance was added the further complication of poor leadership. John Bartleson, who hailed from Jackson County, Missouri, had been chosen company commander by popular vote. But it was understood that this choice was necessary to prevent the withdrawal of himself and his supporters and the consequent disintegration of the party the problems of the journey were intensified still more by the presence of fifteen women and children in the company each member of the party supplied his own equipment his own wagons and animals his own provisions and arms the motive power was furnished by horses mules or oxen as the individual chose food was limited to the essentials flour sugar salt coffee and the like but each person was supposed to have enough to satisfy his own needs money was almost entirely lacking so much so indeed that the entire party possessed less than a hundred dollars in actual cash doubtless the expedition would have come to early ruin had it not been fortunate enough to secure for the part of the way at least the services of two very useful men thomas fitpatrick the famous Rocky Mountain Trapper, and Father DeSmet, pioneer Catholic missionary bound for the Flathead Indians of Idaho. So long as such assistance and leadership were available, the untrained emigrants got on with little difficulty. From the vicinity of Westport, the modern Kansas City, they pursued a northwest course to the Platte. This they followed to the South Fork, along which they continued until a ford allowed them to pass to the other branch of the Main stream. Following the North Platte, they came at last to Fort Laramie in what is now eastern Wyoming. Later they passed Independence Rock and turned to take the Sweetwater to the Rockies. Crossing through the South Pass, the party followed the Little and Big Sandy to Green River, changed their course here somewhat to the northwest until it closely paralleled the present route of the Oregon short line, crossed the divide between Bear and Green Rivers at the head of a tributary of the latter stream named Ham's Fork and so came to Soda Springs, not many miles from the modern city of Pocatello, Idaho. Up to this point, the journey had been marked by no extraordinary hardships. Of course, the immigrants had experienced difficulties and much hard work, especially in getting wagons through a country where wheeled vehicles had only once gone before. Nearly ten years earlier, Sublette had taken a loaded wagon to the Green River Rendezvous and brought back a fortune in furs time however had obliterated nearly every trace of his passage though here and there the faint mark of a wheel was still to be seen by the emigrant party a false alarm of indian attack not without its ludicrous side a cyclone that threatened total destruction but passed harmlessly by the never-ending wonder of the buffalo herds which blackened the plain for several days journey as far as the eye could reach the loss of one man by gunshot wound and of four others who turned back or stopped on the way the nightly encampment with the wagons coupled together to make a hollow square the inconveniences or pleasurable excitements of each day's march the shifting scenery the gradual change from prairie to uplands the sight of snow-clad mountains in the distance and then the slow passage of the rockies till the old life became a thing of the past and a new land lay unfolded before them thus in brief the first stage of the journey was passed at soda springs the second stage of the expedition distinguished chiefly by hardships and privation began here fitzpatrick and de smith turned northward to fort hall and the flathead indians along with them went thirty-two of the emigrants who preferred to seek an outlet to the pacific by way of the columbia rather than risk the unknown route to california among this number were most of the married men with their families But at least one brave woman, Mrs. Benjamin Kelsey, and her little daughter remained with the original party. Of such stuff and heroism was the pioneer motherhood of California. Without the aid of skilled leadership, the company now reduced to less than half its original number, started from Soda Springs on its determined quest for California. The route over which they must go was unknown except by hearsay even to Fitzpatrick jedediah smith and bonneville's men as already narrated had some time before crossed the desert region between the sierras and salt lake but no one knew exactly where four of the emigrants who went to fort hall for information could obtain no more satisfactory instructions than to bear as nearly west as possible after leaving the lake if they went too far south they were told they would reach a desert region and die for lack of water If too far north, they would lose themselves in a broken, desolate country where more than one trapping party had met an unknown fate. With this indefinite and disheartening information to guide them, the party, already a hundred miles from Soda Springs, when the four men who had gone to Fort Hall rejoined them, set out for the Sierra. Their journey across the Utah and Nevada wastes was one of unbroken hardship. The Salt Plains bewildered and almost famished them on several occasions they traveled twenty-four hours without water the mirage misled them with a most pitiless deception of which nature is capable finally because it was necessary to make all possible haste in reaching the sierra before winter set in they abandoned their wagons and much of their baggage and packed the remainder on such animals as remained alive their saddles were hastily made and the animals untrained to the business and the immigrants unskilled in the very difficult art of balancing a load and holding it in place with a sling and hitch confusion followed the first experiment the pack slipped and the animals became frightened and scattered the baggage to the four winds even when by degrees the loads were put on a little more securely delays were frequent and as the oxen could not keep up with the faster walking mules and horses the company became scattered along the whole extent of each day's march Luckily, the Indian tribes through which the expedition passed were inoffensive creatures or the entire party would have been wiped out. Reaching the Humboldt River, the company, many of whom were now on foot, pressed on down the stream until Bartleson and eight others on horseback one day deserted the main band and struck out by themselves for California. The rest of the train, some twenty-five in number, weakened by privation and almost out of provisions, faced a gloomy prospect before them stretched an unknown barren almost desert country where thirst and hunger were certain to cause delay and suffering if indeed they did not take some toll of human life beyond this region but how far none could say the giant sierra stood like a barricade to shut off all approach to california to cross the mountains after the winter snow sent in was impossible not to cross them meant death to every member of the party through starvation It was already well along in september so making what haste they could traveling eighteen or twenty miles a day the emigrants pushed on to the dreary alkaline lake known as humboldt sink then they turned southward to carson river and a little farther on came to the walker or the balm as they appreciatively called it this stream they followed to its outlet from the sierra here they killed the last of the oxen and jerked the meat preparatory to the crossing of the mountains while the party were thus engaged the Bartleson contingent who had taken such unceremonious leave on the humboldt came slowly straggling across the plain they had accomplished nothing by their desertion of the main party except to wander as far south as carson lake most of them moreover were suffering the unpleasant effects of an ill-advised diet of diseased fish and pinion nuts and were in a serious condition the reunited company ascending the sierra on the north side of the walker came at last to a little stream which flowed westward instead of toward the east this proved to be the headwaters of the stanislaus one of the largest tributaries of the san joaquin the course of the river through the mountains was too rough and precipitous to furnish an easy route of travel the emigrants became entangled in gorges and canyons some of which were more than a mile in depth and had to abandon many of their animals Footnote. Bidwell, on a scouting expedition, came upon one of the huge overturned sequoia gigantia of the Calaveras grove, the first white man known to have seen a specimen of the big trees. In footnote, food became scarce, so they ate crows, wildcats, and anything else they could lay hands upon. One member of the party separated from his companions and was not heard of again until he reached, in some miraculous way the establishment of John A. Sutter, where Sacramento now stands. The horses and mules that still survived were so weak they could scarcely travel, and the emigrants, as they dragged themselves down the last weary ridge of the Sierra, were too worn out with fatigue to realize that the San Joaquin Valley lay before them, and that California itself was at hand. Some of them, indeed, even when they reached the floor of the valley, thought that california must still be five hundred miles away bidwell thus describes how the party came to the san joaquin when morning came the foremost of the party waited for the others to come up they had found water in a stagnant pond but what was better they had shot a fat coyote and with us it was anything but mule meat as for myself i was unfortunate being among those in the rear and not aware of the feast in the advance i did not reach it in time to get any of the coyote except the lights and the windpipe longing for fat meat and willing to eat anything but poor mule meat and seeing a little fat on the windpipe of the coyote i threw it on the coals to warm it and greedily devoured it but halcyon days were at hand we turned directly to the north to reach what seemed to be the nearest timber this was at a distance of ten miles or so which in our weakened condition it took us nearly all day to travel it brought us to the stanislaw river at a point not far from the foothills here the rich alluvial bottom was more than a mile wide it had been burned over but the new grass was starting up and growing luxuriously but sparsely like thinly sown grain but what gladdened our eyes most was the abundance of game in sight principally antelope before dark we had killed two of them and two sandhill cranes and besides there was an abundance of ripe and luscious wild grapes still we had no idea that we were yet in california but supposed we had yet to cross the range of mountains to the west within a few days however this dreary illusion was dispelled and by the aid of an indian guide the party came to the ranch of dr john marsh some six miles from the foot of mount diablo they reached this november fourth eighteen forty one after having spent six months on the long and dangerous way, here the company separated and soon became widely scattered throughout the province. Some of the Americans were arrested by General Vallejo at San Jose, but the arrest in most cases was a mere formality. Bidwell, however, because of marsh's failure to secure a passport for him as he had done for the others, was held for three days in the San Jose jail. No food was given him, and the fleas in his cell were so numerous as to darken anything of a light color. Yet even Bidwell's imprisonment was merely the result of official oversight, and as soon as his predicament became known, General Vallejo issued the necessary passport and ordered his release. End of chapter 8